This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is an accomplished actor and director whose face is instantly recognizable from films like Pretty Woman and TV appearances on Curb Your Enthusiasm and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. With Broadway appearances in Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along, Jerome Robbins' Broadway, and Neil Simon's Broadway Bound. Today, he lets us in on the advice that he shared with Larry David about the rigors and the routine of a Broadway run. And he tells us about the creative and therapeutic sensation of making things out of clay with his hands that quiets his mind. He is best known as Frank and Estelle Costanza's boy from NBC's Seinfeld. We will be right back with a conversation with the Right Honorable Jason Alexander. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Where's, where's the applause track? Don't we have, don't we have double? Um, don't we have like, I was waiting for the, uh, the sonic standing ovation, okay. Only for you, my friend. You have so many credits and so many accolades, and most people know about some of them, but before television, and I know that you came from musical theater, people don't probably know you have a Grammy Award and a Tony Award and some of that stuff. You know, I, mean, I didn't know I had a Grammy Award until people started saying, you have a Grammy Award, because <laughs> I don't physically have a Grammy Award. It, it, so it must have gotten lost in the mail, but I, I only recently found out I am, you know, three-fourths of an EGOT, I guess. <laughs> You're getting there. There's still time, right? The story has sure, to being written. Right. The clock is ticking a little faster, but there is time. You're right. Was that for a Jerome Robbins Broadway for uh, the cast? Yeah, apparently that was the one. Okay. I, I didn't get the memo, but yes. <laughs> you know what? It's probably sitting somewhere. That's the thing. Somebody has it. Right. Some other, some other Jason Alexander. <laughs> probably Britney Spears' husband for a minute has my Grammy Award. Oh, is he yeah. also under the same pseudonym? He's also Jason Alexander. Okay. He was probably born Jason Alexander. I had to go get it. Yeah, but when you weren't Jason Alexander, so yeah. in the beginning, were you Jason Alexander when you did start to audition for Broadway and so forth, or were you Greenspan? No, I fell in. I, I somehow stumbled into the professional part of my career at, at age 14, and I had to join. At the time, there were many unions uh, available. I had to join my first union at 14. And my real name, as, as you probably know, is J. Scott Greenspan. And because I was so young, the Greenspan name was just very easy to make fun of. And I had playground trauma. You know, it was like green fill in the blank. So uh, the idea of sticking that on a marquee when I was that young just seemed too overwhelming to me. So I went in to sign up at AFTRA and, you know, it's fill out your name, what's your address, blah, blah. Would you like a professional name? And I went, ooh. I would. Now, my mother, for some reason, named me Jay, but always called me Jason. 
So I was used to Jason and I thought, oh, well, Jason Scott, my middle name, Jason Scott, that'll be a nice, that's lovely. Uh, you know, I can star in Spartacus with a name like that. So they said, what would you like for your stage name? I said, Jason Scott. And they went, yeah, we have 14 of them in every spelling that you can possibly imagine. Right. And I was stumped. I really didn't know. I, I had no idea. What I, that's all I had ever thought of was Jason Scott. And in that second of just sitting with it, I went, you know, I wonder if my dad feels bad that I might, you know, be dropping the Greenspan name. And in that moment of empathy for him, I went, well, his name is Alexander. Oh, what about Jason Alexander? And they went, sure. And that, it was really, that's how it happened in that split second of going pick something. So I was 14 and, and my fantasies and, and my desires about being an actor and what it would mean was really all about the theater. You know, I started, as most people do who wind up being actors, they probably stumble into a school play and they enjoy the experience of being on stage. And, and I thought, oh, that would be great. And I grew up in Jersey, started going to see theater all over the place. And all I ever wanted to do was be in the theater and spent most of the 80s, that 10 years before Seinfeld, that was the mainstay of my career. I was doing commercials and I was going from Broadway show to Broadway show. Well, theater to me is a powerful, extraordinary word because it's the place, right? That you go, it's the event, it's the yeah. profession, it's the community, it's the hobby, it's the habit. It's like a sanctuary of story. There's so many things that that's what gets in your blood when you when you begin to get involved in it, you just realize it's a lifestyle, essentially. It, um, is, it is exactly to say it is many things. For me, I know that my persona these days is as, oh, Mr. Gregarious, life of the party, he'd light up a room. But I was really a pretty introverted, shy, sort of frightened kid. And I didn't have a lot of friends. I had like one best friend. And when I moved from one town to the next, I kind of left him behind. I didn't know anybody. And the great thing about the theater is, you know, you, you get into the cast of a show. If you don't suck on day one, you're everybody's best friend. Everybody is immediately up in each other's business. So I loved the community of the theater. To me, what, what the epiphany that I had when I went to see Pippin on Broadway, I've been going to theater for a while, but I went to see Pippin and it was the first time I saw actual magic tricks on the stage in, in a theater piece. And I went, oh my God. This whole thing is a magic trick. Nothing up there is real. These people aren't who they say they are. We're not where they say we are. But the audience buys into it completely. They just suspend their any sort of disbelief and they go with the story and they go with the illusion. And having aspired to be a bit of a magician myself, when I realized that was a magic trick I could do, that really intrigued me. And then you're right, the lifestyle, you either you either as a performer, it either gratifies you on a cellular basis or it doesn't, because I know so many wonderful actors, film and television actors, who would never get up on a stage and walk that tightrope. And to me, that's the most exciting thing I can do, is to go, here's everything I know. It's this delicate little illusion I'm going to create for you. And if anything goes wrong, it's shattered. But boy, isn't that interesting? Isn't that exciting? And so I, I love it. It's, there's so much adrenaline because what people don't realize, and actors do, is there is a moment when you cross from backstage to onstage. There's a threshold where you set your fears aside and you put on a bulletproof vest and you expose yourself to the audience yeah. and you're exchanging that for applause and acceptance and so forth. But in many ways, you are alive for the performance and the actor has control of that in the things that you do in television and film, an editor 
can assemble a performance. But boy, when this show goes up every night, when that curtain goes up, the director, the editor, nobody exists, but you and the other performers and that energy that's coming from the crowd that tells you they're crying or they're laughing, their mind is open to a discussion or hope or whatever. It's, yeah. it's really, it, Jerry describes stand-up as surfing a wave. It's like, get in the wave, get in the pipeline and stay there, right? And when the laugh crests, that's the moment that you get off that wave. Right. Back, back out the back of the board, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it so, is absolutely transformative. There was, you know, when I was doing uh, Broadway Bound, the Neil Simon play on Broadway, John Randolph was in it playing my grandfather. And John was probably 74 at the time. And, you know, he was, he was hale and hearty, but he, he, he had the stature of a 74-year-old man of that generation. Now 74 is like the new 50, but um, then 74 was old. And in the wings, John's head would be down, his shoulders would be stooped, his back was a little bent, he was tired, his voice was a little weak. He would cross that line you're talking about, come out of the wings and onto the stage, and you, you were looking at uh, Douglas Fairbanks. I mean, he was hale and hearty, full of vigor, piss and vinegar, and he could sustain it all through the show, and then he'd take his bow and get back on, into the wings, and the head would come down and the shoulders would stoop, and he was... He, he was right back to being who he was. Well, given that also, maybe you can take me back because Broadway itself is the greatest moment in an actor's career. The first curtain up, the behind the curtain for you of Broadway, was that Merrily We Go Along? Well, where was that for you? Was it that yeah. show? So I, Merrily was my Broadway debut and I was uh, trying to remember, it was 1981, I think. So I, I was probably 20 or 21 years old when that curtain went up and, you know, it was mind blowing because my fantasy was that I would eventually work on Broadway, but I thought 40, 50, you know, I didn't know I, didn't know I was going to leave college to work on Broadway. And Merrily is a notoriously interesting show in that it has a brilliant, brilliant score by Stephen Sondheim a really interesting story, but the show has never worked. It's never been a commercial success. And when the curtain went up on the first preview performance of Merrily at the, uh, was then the Alvin Theater, it's now the Neil Simon Theater, you couldn't stand anywhere in that theater. The audience had overflowed because this was the reunion of Hal Prince, Steve Sondheim, and George Firth, the team that had created Company, if nothing else. And people were just, you know, beside themselves to see what this new creation was going to be. The buzz in the audience during the overture, you could feel it right through the curtain. And then the curtain went up. And I, I mean, if, if this were visual, I could actually perform it for you. Within three minutes, we saw the audience go from edge of their seat, out of their minds, enthusiastic to confused, to sitting back in their seats, to going, uh, what? And when the curtain went up on the second act, we had a hundred people in the house. Oh, so, heartbreaking. You know, yeah. So it's, it, well, it's the full potential experience of doing a Broadway show in one night. It was just everything from A to Z. Well, can I tell you, I did watch the documentary. There's yeah. a beautiful documentary on Netflix called The Best Worst Thing That Could Happen. The Best or could, Worst Thing That Ever Happened. Yeah. That Ever Happened, right. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I just really want the listener to hear that title and to look it up on Netflix because it, it does show you the bittersweet getting the wish of everything you ever wanted to be in a brand new Stephen Sondheim show on Broadway with Hal Prince directly, all of that. 
and all of these lives, all of the castmates you had and everyone wide-eyed and like just tasting this like manna from heaven thinking everything's up from here. Right. And then I it, maybe the run was at 16 shows or something in that nature. It was, it was it was more than you would think because we pre we kept postponing the opening night. So it was 11 weeks of previews. But once it opened, it was two weeks and out. So 13-week run altogether, but only officially a two-week run. And then you close it by everybody singing the official cast album, which is a big thing, right? So, yeah. and, and I didn't realize they did that regardless, but it must have been important because it being Stephen's score and so forth. Oh, absolutely. Right? There, was, there was no chance that Stephen Sondheim's score wasn't going to get recorded, but you are right. We recorded the cast album the day after we closed the show. That must have been, oh God, I don't even imagine. Emotional. It was a bit emotional. <laughs> yeah. But here's what's beautiful about the movie. It tells the story of all of these people. And even for me, seeing a young uh, Jason Alexander, you were singing and dancing and doing your thing. And there was just an energy and enthusiasm. And because people, I think, have had you in their home so frequently on television and they think of you as George, and I'm sure it must be the strangest thing any day you walk out of your house. Any, <laughs> anywhere you go to buy milk or do anything, they're having a conversation directly with George. We used to have a getaway at Maui that we thought was great, and then, you know, <laughs> I'd come home to L.A., and there's a picture of me in the star. We tried to keep out of the limelight for as long as we could. Yeah, that's... But let's talk about your kids then. You've just mentioned that I had an interface with Gabe. We were looking for some improv groups. I got a chance to watch a whole bunch of his comedy with a partner. And it was really, really fun for me. I was like, wow, this because they were really funny. And I know that he's a writer as well. Both of your sons are writers. Is that right? Yeah, they write different things. Gabe is much more performative. And my younger son, Noah, is writing a novel. And now, is is your wife, Dana, in the business? Dana stopped acting years ago for the last. 25 plus years she's been a professional painter yeah. so you you are a house of creatives that's what i was curious for better, about for better or worse yeah it comes with it all so yeah. what was that like with the kids growing up in terms of activities and finding out what they loved or how did she get them involved in painting uh, along the way or did that come after no they've uh, they've sadly inherited my artistic flair <laughs> i can't draw a stick figure my, with Gabe, it was really self-evident and self-determinative. You're trying to figure out how to entertain your kids and what their tastes are. And Dana loves old movies. So Gabe was probably about two years old and she had run out of cartoons or whatever she was showing him that day. So she put on, you remember this um, compilation film, That's Entertainment? It was a big compilation of, of the great numbers in MGM musicals back in the 40s and 50s heyday. And... Gabe was riveted to it. I mean, he didn't get tired of it. And when Gene Kelly came on and did Singing in the Rain, his eyes fell out of his head. And he, he watched that number and he went, again. And she played it again. And he went, again. And she played it again. Well, by the next day, he had gotten like a little thing to be an umbrella, you know, either like some stick or a, or a Lego or something, and a hat. And he would watch that thing and imitate the moves. Within a week, short of the actual tap steps, he had every move of that thing down. And we filmed him in front of the TV set doing this number. He's two years old. Filmed him doing the number with Gene Kelly 
and sent the tape to Gene Kelly. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Who just sent this beautiful message back. And then the next song Gabe got like smitten by was Donald O'Connor doing Make Him Laugh. Of course. And within two weeks, we would have to prop him up because there's a lot of props in that one. But he had Make Him Laugh Down. We sent that to Donald O'Connor and Gabe still has on his bedroom wall the letter that Donald O'Connor wrote back, which said, Gabriel, normally when someone plagiarizes my routines, I would have my lawyer contact them. However, since you did it so much better than I did and all in one take, I must bow to a greater <laughs> artist. Congratulations, your friend Donald O'Connor. It, it was so, it was just amazing. And so that was Gabe. Gabe told us. I, I like performing. I like music and I like singing and dancing and acting and having fun. But Noah was a different story altogether. Noah presented very differently. Noah is a very different kind of guy. So Gabe is absolutely the extrovert. Noah is really very much an introvert. And uh, Noah, as a little, little kid, would have told you he doesn't like music. So whenever you'd put on music, we, we actually tried to um, soothe him one day. His, he, you know, he had to make like a a crazy decision about doing something or not doing something. And he had that four-year-old meltdown of, I want to, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to. And the ship sort of sailed without him. And Dana started singing him a song to make him feel better. And four-year-old Noah goes, mom, don't make my life into a musical. I mean, you know, he was that, he was that kid. He always had a flair with words. He always was a deep thinker and a deep observer. His emotional well was very, very deep. And so he was going to have to find a way to get that out or it would have devastated him. And his way was with words. He started writing stories and poetry as a, as a little kid that we would sit there and go, Jesus Christ, how does he, how does he come up with these things? And, um, and that has remained. That has sort of been his creative outlet. And the fact that he's now writing uh, is, is a surprise to no one. Expression sometimes has to find its way into the world. And yeah. um, it, it sounds like what's in his heart and in his head, he's able to communicate in a really extraordinary way. I mean, that, that must be a fun time at the dinner table. Yeah, it was great. But you know, it's so funny, since you're talking about creativity, what, what Noah once said about my wife. So Dana was anything they wanted to explore that would at all feed their souls or expand their vistas. She was on it. And Noah came home one day and he said, yeah, it was a funny conversation. We were all sitting around talking about our mothers. And, you know, some people have different relationships. Some of the kids had sort of difficult relationships with their mothers and whatnot. And Noah says, and Dana says, well, how did you describe me? And she said, well, I called you the Siri of moms. He went, what does that mean? He goes, well, I might passingly say, huh, gymnastics looks fun. And you will immediately go, there are seven locations in your immediate area. Would you like me to call this one? <laughs> so here's what's interesting about that kind of support. My mom, uh, we got along well. She was uh, supportive in one way. She was watching That's Entertainment on television. And I was in the background of the living room. And I was pretty good, like juggling and, and top hat moves, right? And so I spent hours throwing a top hat at a hat rack and hooking it on the hat rack in the background of the living room. Sure. And you're 10 and you're going, honey, I'm home and throwing the on the rack. Like right. that was yeah. really funny to me. But anyway, she's watching that's entertainment and there is a Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly duet or something. And she looks over her shoulder and says to me, how come most people who can sing can also dance and you can't do either? <laughs> 
uh, and I was like, this is like the greatest insult. You know, wow. I was like, oh, wow. I'm not even doing anything wrong, you know. Um, but she didn't say it like rude. It was just sort of practical. It was just like matter of fact. It's very, my, my mother had a tinge of that. My mother would have said, where are you going to go with that? Throwing hats. Where, where is that going to get you? No, this is your time. Right. Throwing hats. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's, and it's, it's funny because I now, you know, I use her in the material. You know, I have a long stand up routine about parents not being able to tell you the names of movies and things, right? They, we're going to sure. see the French fried potato movie. We're going to see whatever <laughs> it is, right? Sun dried tomatoes, whatever. They, they, they can say anything but the actual name of the movie, sure. right? So my mom will read them wrong out of the paper. Like, what is Pet Seminary about? <laughs> I don't know, maybe a cat in the priesthood. I don't know what you're talking. You know, it's hilarious. It worked well on the Tonight Show. I did in other places. And now she's saying, you never paid me for the things I wrote. I was like, you didn't write that. Like she now understands show business a little bit. So she was yeah. looking for royalties on routines where I exploited her. They just don't understand. Right. They don't care. My mother used to say, when you imitate me, I don't sound like that. And I go, it's true, but you don't sound funny. So I make you funny. You're welcome. <laughs> Here's another thing you'll understand because of mom's like that. My mom innocently, one time I was doing a morning radio show in the hometown I was visiting. And I went over to do the radio show. And then there was a caller. You know, typically somebody will call and they got a question. So the guy goes, oh, we got a caller. And it's my mom. I had left her house <laughs> 20 minutes before I'm on the radio. And, and, and she comes on and she goes, Patrick, on your way home, can you please pick up some syrup for your dad's pancake? Oh and, and the guy's howling. And I go, mom, this isn't an intercom. Like, this is for people <laughs> with questions that are curious. And she's like, oh, you're too big to get the syrup. Is that what? Like, it was so hilarious. Best sidekick ever. And and since that call, she now knows something's funny. She doesn't know what she's doing, but she knows right. she can get into that vein. And she any if she comes to a live show and I'm doing a routine, she'll stand up. Oh, I still love you. Oh, Mom, sit down. <laughs> like, they don't even know you're here. This is, I'm not putting you down. Like, and people always take her side. <clears throat> and, I, and, and it's like an improv show because she's not my nemesis, but she'll pop up. You know, yeah. yeah. She's Jerry Lewis. Do you see my the stooge? She's the guy going, a little hoozy in the audience. Like, yeah, right. I get it. So, you know, <laughs> let me talk about another thing that relates to theater, which is the energy of it. What the grit of, of the performance and the seven or eight shows a week and the walking to and from the theater, that's a part of it. That's all a part of it. How, it how is. You know, you? I had a. I had a really funny conversation. This will, this will kind of answer your question. I had a funny conversation with Larry David. Because Larry had written Fish in the Dark that he was going to go star in himself on Broadway. So several months before that, he called me out of the blue and said, I want to take you to lunch. Uh, I'm doing this thing and I, and I want to know what am I in for and am I going to like it? <laughs> and I walked him through really step by step the soup to nuts. I said, okay, well, the first day of rehearsal, everybody's excited. Um, you know, everything feels fun and loose and exciting and upbeat. And you'll get to know the people you're working with. Hopefully you'll like them. If you do like them, the first week of rehearsal is going to be fun. You're finding things, things are working, you're changing things. Second week, same thing. You know, you get even closer with people. You got your inside jokes. Now you're starting to become a company. Third week of rehearsal, everything falls apart. Nothing's good. Nothing's funny. Nothing works. And you're going to panic. You're going to want to change it or get out and just know it's fine. 
you just have to muscle through that, get into the fourth week of rehearsal and just muscle through. By the end of the fourth week, you've got your show. You see what it feels like. You go, okay, all right, we got our show. Now you're going to move to the theater. And initially you're going to go, wow, this is exciting. This is a Broadway theater. Look at this set. Oh my God, I get to wear a microphone. Blah, 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 blah. Here's my dressing room. And now you're going to do uh, about five or six 12-hour long days where you just re- you go over and over and over little tiny things so that everybody who isn't an actor gets their act together. You know, when does the curtain go up, the light, the thing, the blah, blah, blah. No sense of the show. It's all about lights and sets and costumes and people moving and getting out of each other's way. Then you're going to do a dress rehearsal and it's going to suck. <laughs> it's going to be terrible because you're trying to incorporate into that nice, smooth rehearsal show that you did. You're trying to get all this technical stuff in. It's going to be bad. And the next one's going to be bad. And now you got a preview and you go, oh my God, we're dead. We're dead, we're dead, we're dead. And the people that come to the previews, they're either your greatest fans or they're the ones with the sharpest knives. That's what you're in for. They want it to be great or they want it to suck raw balls. I mean, it's just, that's what they want. And if it goes well, you're going to be glorious. Now you're going to get through to your opening night. Every audience is going to make you happy. Opening night is the greatest thing in the world. Everybody should have an opening night on Broadway. It's the greatest thing that will ever happen. The flowers, the gifts, the energy, the audience, bump. If the reviews come out and they're bad, you're going to want to hang yourself from a tree. If they come out and they're good, they're not going to be good enough. They're going to say, it was pleasant, fun, nice, did a beautiful job, a lovely debut. And you'll go, no, great, no, extraordinary, no, uh, not since Tennessee Williams, none of that. I said, now you're going to start your run. And if the reviews have been good, the audience is coming, they're excited, you'll feel that buzz, they laugh at everything, they're standing ovations. First week is great, second week is great, third week, you're getting a little tired. Fourth week. Around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday, you will rather drive an ice pick through your own eye than have to walk down to that theater. You don't want to do it. You don't want to go. You don't want to see those people. You don't want to say those words. You don't give a crap about that show. You want it done. Just take the walk. Get to the theater. Once you get in the door, you'll see your friends. You'll start talking about your day. It'll feel like a family again. You'll get out there, you'll find the energy, the audience will laugh. And I said, and you'll do that from week after week after week. And, you know, every day is glory. Every day is hard. You will have no life outside of that show. You will be up till three in the morning. You will get up around 1230 in the afternoon. Uh, You have to eat very carefully. You cannot drink, at least not to excess, because you will not be able to do that show. You can't speak loud. You can't go to a noisy restaurant. You must save your voice. All your day does is create a, a, the, the conditions that will allow you to be explosive at 8 o'clock at night. And you will do that eight times a week. And when it is done, you will go, oh, I'm so sorry it's done. And you will live like you have never lived before. That's the life of the theater. And it is the reason why people either love it or hate it. And I, I get that thing where at four o'clock on Thursday, I go, I would rather chew glass than go down there. And you have to, that's the moment you have to face. You have to go, I got to get to the theater. Once I'm at the theater, the magic will kick in. But it's the thought of having to lift that, that Sisyphus rock up the hill again that just seems so daunting once you get into the, the, the meat of the run. It is. There's several things about it. Number one, the boards of a theater for a theater person. When you go into this place that you know Will Rogers performed here or, you know, yeah. somebody like the ghost light to me is one of the great magical things in all of theater. 
And for those who don't know what it is, it sits a single bulb on the stage. It lights the stage at night. And I think it's primarily for safety. So somebody doesn't walk off into the pit or whatever. But there's a myth, mythical stories about it. And it's there holding the life of the theater and keeping the ghosts out and giving a well wish for good performance and so forth. But there is something about the theater that is alive. For some people, they feel that tug to the beach. They have to live by the ocean or have to see water, right? Some people have to mm-hmm. see the mountains. But when I go to New York and I walk that st- those streets and I see those chaser lights of those Broadway theaters, there's a pulse to it. But it's exactly what you said. It's a roller coaster ride. And everybody you take on it, when you're a director, I have to say to them, okay, everybody, you got to swallow the horse pill of memorizing this material and you've got to do it before I see you. We're going to have a process. You're going to be allowed to explore, but I don't want you to be wondering what you're saying. You, these are words you can mechanically get into your body because you've chosen this profession. Nobody gets off yeah. easy you know, in that particular line of work and it generally doesn't pay a huge amount. So you got to love it. Well, that's the thing that most people don't realize is that, you know, if you go see uh, whatever, Wicked on Broadway, the, the people in that ensemble are living their highest dream. They are in a hit Broadway show. They've got a gig and they've got job security for as long as their voices and bodies will hold up. And you think, well, my God, they've made it. Most of them are working some sort of second job if they're trying to live in Manhattan. Because I think, I'm, I'm not up on it right now, but I think base pay for a Broadway chorus performer, I think is $1,800 a week, which sounds like a lot of money. But if you're living in New York City and you're paying an agent or a manager or a lawyer, I, I mean, you're, you're going home with maybe 1000 a week. And I don't know anybody cutting it in New York City for no. 4000 a week. No, you got to have two roommates. and I mean, you got to really yeah. figure it out, right? Yeah. It is the patron in the audience who's like $100 for this ticket. Like they don't really realize what the mechanics and yeah, at the top of the bill, often you do have some people that are making decent money and that's fine. But uh, again, all of those forest members and ensemble folks and roustabouts and stage choreographers, everybody's got their hand in this thing to to their, I'll say it this way. We're all just midwives to deliver a story. You know, it's also, it's that primordial thing about, for whatever reason, human beings have gathered around a strong light source and told each other our stories since we were living in caves. And I think we crave it. And I think part of what we're all missing in this pandemic is we're gathering around that TV set, hoping for the same experience. And it's not. Um, There's a reason when people say, well, movie theaters come back. They will, because we kind of like doing this in large groups. We like making an event of these, of these stories, some of these stories. Um, and and I, there is something about that communal, immediate experience of a live theater show that is, ex- it's just extraordinary. And you also know, when you're, whether you're on the stage that night or in the audience, there are, it is not an identical experience you know, from the thing that you did, the matinee and the evening show are actually qualitatively different. So what happens in that event in those two and a half hours is unique and will never happen again. And you've either been there for it or or you've missed it. It can't be repeated. And if you film it, it doesn't come off the same. No, I know. There's so many beautiful. Yeah. It's like an Etch-A-Sketch drawing, right? Like they shake it every night. You got to try to recreate it. Have you been able to direct something that was something always on your dream because i know that you're 
directing uh, yeah. theater as well? You know, it's it, what's interesting now is that, is because the directing part of my life has has is the thing I'm actually most passionate about right now. I, I'm I, I'd love to keep doing great roles as an actor, but I I seem to find myself more actively engaged and engaging with the director job. Uh, I did a I directed a small musical that if you're a musical theater fan, you've at least heard of it if not seen it. It is a two-person, usually a two-person musical written by Jason Robert Brown called The Last Five Years. And it is, it's really a song cycle of 14 songs. It's about a five-year relationship in this couple's life, a romantic couple. And the little sort of novelty of the show is that the man tells his story from beginning to end while simultaneously the woman tells it from end to beginning. And I had always been a big fan of that show. I love the score, but I had never quite ever seen a production of it that I thought was worthy of the stage. It wasn't visually very interesting. There is nothing in the, the material that says, tell her story this way and his story that way. It, it's, it's not organic to the material itself. So I kind of wanted to reinvent the wheel on that show. And I got to do it at Syracuse stage. And I, without going into a whole thing of what I did, but I can tell you there were six people on stage, three men, three women, all playing the same person. And we added an element to it where it was not about time going backwards or time going forward. It was about uh, the male character is a novelist. And so he was trying to write a book and recollect the moments for her to explain why this had happened. And people seemed to get the material in a way that I had not seen them get it before. And it suddenly visually held the stage in this kind of glorious way. It was filled with dance, which it had never been before. And it was filled with these beautiful uh, projections. And uh, so it was one of those things that was so gratifying because this idea that I had in my head about what else this material could be, and, and it was so hard to explain to people, well, it's going to be this, it's going to be that, it's going to be this. And everybody said, okay, you seem to see it, take a shot. And it I've never, I mean, not that reviews are the end all be all, but critics came in who knew this piece and went, oh my God, I did not know that could be in this. And that was so gratifying to be able to not change it, but to contribute to its possibilities. Right. But that's what's so creative about that moment is that you interpreted the content without changing it. And I think that comes from being an actor. Actors have a tendency to honor the words. Other people come, well, if we just rewrite the opening and we just cut this song, they want to chop it all up. But it's finding a new way to present it or to uh, deliver it in a way that's more accessible. Absolutely. And it was all, what was great and instructive for me was, okay, Jason, don't get, you know, don't start masturbating in your own creativity here. The reason you're doing this is to give the audience a different, hopefully fuller experience. It's about them, 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 them. And keeping myself rooted to what am I building and who am I building it for kept me, I think, from having to change things, you know, that the author would have written or that the author would have intended. And it, it kept me honest. It is something that I, I teach acting students now. And I, my mantra has become when you're an actor, yeah, you want to make great choices about your material, but here's the real, here's the real mountaintop. Make great choices for your partner. Because if you serve them something that they have to respond to, 
in unexpected, glorious ways, they're going to do something fantastic back to you. Then you get to do something fantastic back to that piece of impetus. And you're going to be playing a totally different game of tennis than you would if you're just lobbing the ball back to each other. Uh, it's very exciting. The reaction is so much more honest than the acting. I, I had a small part in the Friday Night Lights series that I got <laughs> on the fly. They had apparently hired a real detective who couldn't remember the lines. And like, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really even uh, acting anymore. I got a call to go to this audition. I read, and on the way home in the car, they call, you start tomorrow. And I don't know, it's because I didn't even want the part. I, I just was like doing a courtesy read. And the funny uh, side note is I show up at the trailer and the detectives in the dressing room, they didn't tell him that he wasn't working anymore, oh, which geez. I was like, oh, and, and I go, oh, sorry. And then somebody took me aside and said, oh, can you go get hair and makeup? We got something to deal with. And oh. in the meantime, in that makeup chair, they handed me a script with a new character name and they kept the guy in the scene. It's, oh, it was really good. nice. They didn't get rid of him. Yeah. But they made me his boss. And in the scene, they made me send him out for coffee or something. And he never came back. So it was so strange. Uh oh, here was the point. Right. Here was the point of the story. It had to do with the director giving notes to two actors that I was in scene, the scene with. And I just happened to overhear both sets of notes. They didn't uh -huh. both hear them. There was a murder that had happened and the kid had killed somebody. We didn't know it yet, but his dad was a, another police chief and he was protecting his kid. The director said to the father in this interrogation, right before the interrogation room, he said, whatever happens, do not let that kid leave this room. And then mm -hmm. they went off to do something. When we went to set up the scene, it was me and the kid at the table and we finished talking and he says to the kid, this scene is not going to end in this room. Take it wherever you want. Take it in the hallway. Take it in the parking lot. I don't want to hear the ending lines in this room. And I, now I'm like, oh my, I like, I know a secret. And I'm like, yeah. what's going to happen? And I'm telling you, that kid muscled his way out of that room and down the hall. And we continued the, the Friday Night Lights camera people or whatever. They just, they go with it. They go wherever yeah. they want. And they followed us down the hall and out, out the doors. And there were people in that building doing their work. It wasn't like a soundstage that heard the ruckus in the hallway and heads were popping out. And, and it was like, oh, that's why they do this so well. It's so real. I had, I had read that because I was a, a huge fan of that show. And I had read that, you know, very rarely are there marks. Very rarely do they over-rehearse stuff. You know, there's enough cameras to cover anything that might happen. And that show had that wonderful sort of spontaneous... I used to think before I started seeing those actors pop up and other things, I went, I don't think these people are <laughs> actors. I think they went to Texas and found people in this town and went, yeah, 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 you, you know, kind right. of thing. They, they were... I mean, that cast is uniformly glorious. <laughs> I want to change the creativity subject quick, like a full flip into sure. something that you mentioned to me that I have no education on. And that is that you've been doing ceramics and ceramics is a really hands-on build it as you, as you're working it and all that kind of thing. Tell me when you started ceramics and what the vibe is, you know? Like almost any kid, when I was in high school, you know, we had a fair, that was back when they used to fund arts education. So you got to try a lot of things. And in art class, we had like a two week experience with doing pottery. You know, you get to be on a potter's wheel. And I didn't remember much about it other than I kind of liked the sensation of it. I don't think I made anything terribly interesting, but I liked the feel of it. 
And here in LA, about five minutes from my house, there is a pottery studio that works as a sort of a collective. You can join, and once you join, you pay a monthly fee, and you have a key code to the front door. You can go 24-7, and the wheels are there, the glazes are there, the tools are there, the clay is there. So I went and I said, well, let me take one lesson and see if I remember this as affectionately as I think I do. Because I was just, I was, it was a period of time where most of what I was doing was corporate gigs or, or a kind of a stand-up comedy. I was never like you. I wasn't a real stand-up, but I, I could fake sort of corporate versions of it. And I was on the road a lot. And I, when I came home, I was always sort of sitting around waiting for the next road trip. So I went in there and I took one lesson and I went, oh my God, I loved it. it. Literally, I find it very hard to quiet my head. I think a lot of creative people find it hard to sort of shut it down. And all of a sudden, with this clay spinning under my fingers and every little, tiny little touch that you put into your fingers changes this clay immediately and, and in kind of amazing and unexpected ways. And I was totally sucked in by that experience. Three hours went by, it felt like three minutes. So I joined and I started taking the classes and I, I became like a mental patient watching YouTube videos of people making things. And I, it, that was about seven years ago, started making, you name it. I've made uh, lots of bowls, lots of vases, candlesticks, mugs, cups, platters, plates, all different techniques, some hand building, some wheel throwing. A and what I love about it, you know, if you create as a hobby or, or, or as you're living, you'll understand this. I have never, nothing I've made has ended up the way I thought it was going to. So I can set out to go, I'm going to make that. And at some point, a combination of my lack of experience and knowledge, as well as what I call the clay told me what it wanted to do. And we have this dialogue and the clay does a thing. And if I'm really smart, I go, shut up, back away, turn off the wheel, don't, don't move. You mean you're saying, it, you know, that's when it's time to end? Yeah. I mean, for something that you're doing and imposing on this clay, it still feels like a collaborative and engaged conversation with something. So it is, it's just very rewarding. It, it is sort of Zen meditation to me. I enjoy the people that are there very much. They're either similar to me or they're very different from me. And yet we have this one thing that bonds us. And it, it has actually soothed my soul. It, it, it creates a kind of a peace that I don't know how to find most other ways. When, when my mind is going or I'm just agitated about things happening in the world and when it seems bleak, there's something about taking dirt and water and making something out of nothing that is just very reassuring and comforting and engaging and peaceful. I, I think it's primordial. I think that there is something about the creative process where you have the control to take the project on, but when you take the ride on the project, right, you know, the journey unfolds, as you say. Right. So that's a great analogy for anything, for a writer, anybody that's trying to overimpose what happens, you know, they end up with something that fits some kind of template and it ultimately yeah. isn't satisfying or gratifying. Maya Angelou said, you can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. I have, uh, no, but I have something that you might be fascinated by because of your love of theater and all of that and, uh, and your legacy to your dad with your name. 
in my wallet. Uh, this is a personal thing. I have the ticket from the first theater show that I was in in high school. There was a box of stuff that my mom sent me after my dad passed. She didn't know this was in there. She sent a pile of old programs and things. And I was in a play in high school. And out of the program fell a ticket to the show. And on the back of the ticket in my dad's handwriting is this beautiful note that says, Pat, I was very proud of you to see you do such an excellent job tonight. Good luck in all future productions. And all is underlined. So I kept this as my wow. good luck ticket because it does apply to all productions. And the name of the show was Look Homeward Angel. Homeward Angel. Oh, my telling you, God. I get shivers when I look at it. I go, yeah. oh, this is crazy because my dad was really a supporter. He was an engineer and other things. But he, he encouraged me in the arts, in magic, in juggling, in any crazy thing I wanted to do, similar to yeah. the way Dana did with your sons. But my dad, he wouldn't give me the money for it or whatever. He'd go, well, if you're going to buy some magic tricks, you're going to have to mow more lawns or you're going to have to like, he gave me sort of the permission to dream. And then right. I would race out to the mailbox and open it to see if my thing came from the, you know, Chicago magic shop, the zipper banana or whatever dopey thing I bought. <laughs> You know, I bought some of the stupid Can, things. Candle through the arm. Right. I remember right. them all. Yeah, right. right. There was a place called Tannen's Magic in, in New York, which still... I went to their camp. I went to Tannen's okay. Magic. Okay. Well, they're an amazing place. And they had a big, fat catalog. And I would go through and look at these illustrations and just fantasize about it. There was a picture of like a Merlin, and he was reaching into a brown paper bag and pulling out a ball of fire and throwing it into the air. Yeah. I was like... I'm going to have to have this for the lunchroom. Right, and sure. And, you know, the, the way the drawing is, it's a sketch. It's like a softball-sized ball of fire. Who's not going to notice me when I do this? What comes in the mail is this sad brown paper bag, and inside of it is glued a baggie, and in that baggie is a cotton ball with a match in the center that's soaking it, you know, that you're supposed to put lighter fluid on. And the idea that you're going to strike the match on the thing and pull this cotton ball out and not set the bag on fire. I was like, what is, what is this? This is the biggest, you know, scam I've ever seen. And yeah. yet on the front of the catalog, no returns. We sell secrets. You know, oh, you bet. Once you know the you bet. secret, we can't take it back. I know you're, you're still a uh, fan of magic and I know you're a magic castle yeah. guy and those kinds of things. Yeah. It, it, it's such an interesting discipline because it does have all of those things. And it probably, to circle all the way back around for you, Robert Houdin, which was the French forefather of magic, right. who Houdini took his name from, mm -hmm. he was quoted as saying, a magician is only an actor playing the part of a magician. Of a magician. Right? Yeah. And I think that exactly. sort of sums up what happened to you in your world, that you had a, a magic as a kid, and then you saw that yeah. it was illusion, and then you mastered the illusion. Even what you talked about interpreting the material as a director, you're doing that as an actor every time. You're interpreting. I, I had a lucky seat on Seinfeld as a writer, but also as a, a studio audience comedian. That was like a thankless job. But what I got to do was witness the written page, the run through, the rehearsal, the taping. And I could see, like, I sometimes I would read a script and I knew it was funny, but I didn't get it. And I'd go, oh, we got a turkey this week. And then I would see you and Julia and everybody, and I'd go, oh, oh, it's what they're doing. It's how they're saying it. It's, it's the pushing. It's the angst. It's the, 
And I would go, this is so much funnier in their interpretation than I can imagine. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to throw that right back to you because what I would always say when people asked us, what was the success of the show? I go, it's the, it's the writing. I mean, if somebody in football analogy, if somebody throws me a ball to the two yard line, it's not a miracle of talent to, to fall into the end zone. So the writing was spectacular on the show. And, and, and you were a big part of that as well, you and Matt. But when I show, when people say, can I look at a Seinfeld script? And I show them a script and they go, well, where are the jokes? And I go, yeah, exactly. It, it, there was a, such a beautiful collaboration between the writers and the actors of that show because we knew what you guys wanted the thing to be. And you knew that you didn't have to write the ha 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 on the page for us to get you what you saw in the first place. That was what made doing that show so joyful was that the writing needed our collaboration to bring it really to fruition. But that the writing was so good, uh, you know, everybody says, oh, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But I go, I can think of a ton of actors that could have brought that, that writing over the finish line. We were very lucky to, to be the ones that got the gig. I mean, there is nothing worse as an actor than getting a script that is supposedly full of comedy that doesn't work. And because it is written to, to be a ha-ha, it's just sitting there like an egg in a cup and you go, well, that's an egg and it can't be anything else. And then you don't get to eat that egg because it doesn't work. And you go, well, now we all have broken egg. You guys made that a joy. Well, here's joy. what's interesting. Obviously to credit Larry and Jerry for the impetus of all of that. And, and Larry in particular is a very interesting part of the recipe because it wasn't really exposed until the very end of the series, how selfish all of these characters were. People weren't quite figuring out why they don't get what they want. Well, it's because they're going after something for themselves and they're not going to, we're not going to let that pay off. Right. That was sort of a Larry device that Larry himself deals with. By now, everybody can look at a timeline. You were such a good interpreter of the angst of Larry David in that George part and made it likable. When people then see Larry and in Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry, they're like, oh, this guy is such a curmudgeon. And I know that people are polarized because people would know I had a, a relationship with the show and they either just love that part of Larry or they hate it. They would say to me, the right. guy's a millionaire and he's a, whatever. What does he got to complain about? I go, he's doing this on purpose. He's getting it under right. your skin with the right. worst possible thing. And he's always hoisted his own, on his own petard. In the, he doesn't, take any glory out of it. In the yeah, there's no triumph in his life. <laughs> and in both cases, when you're writing that much for a, a medium like television, which is like a sausage machine, it's eating the material up as fast as you can. Right. We were in our very early, boy, it was when it was even called the Seinfeld Chronicles. Um, yeah. The first four episodes were sort of a series of specials. It was during that time that we would go to lunch. And I remember... Larry telling Jerry and Matt and I about the contest. They had he had an actual friend in New York. It was whoever couldn't pleasure themselves. And we asked every question. Wait, how do you know they're not cheating? What's going on? I wouldn't right. trust my friends for a second. And in earnest, he was having that real thing happen to him. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that that episode got written and was, of course, Absolutely. one of people's favorites. But that's the cycle of Larry David's 
world that eventually in Seinfeld, they were writing about the pilot, the way the real pilot got pitched and they cast people that looked like the real executives of NBC. I mean, but that goes to show you how much, how much a person has to give to their art, make the world become real. And then they have to be honest with it. And you know, uh, probably even better than I do, the notebooks that, ca- that Larry would keep. He, he was the greatest chronicler of the minutiae of his own life under the notion of this, I can use this somehow, somewhere, to dedicate himself to being the source of the creativity of his career out of his own interactions and observations. That's really the genius of Larry. You know, Jerry has his own kind of genius, but Larry's just pure chronicalization of, you know, I, I saw a guy uh, put only dimes in the parking meter. He had quarters. Why didn't he just use dimes? And he goes, I'm going to use it. I, you know, it's, it's magic. Yeah, and he also used to honor that. I remember facing him off on a couple of things that I would pitch that happened to me. That My, mm-hmm. my apartment got tented in L.A. with some big circus tent because of termites. And it was the, the super said to all of us, find somebody else in this complex, partner up, and I'll get hotels. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm not going to share a hotel room with the creepy guy at number eight or whatever. Right. And I thought that's the weirdest thing. So I imagined what if Jerry and Newman had to be in a hotel together, whatever. I pitched the general idea and Larry goes, mm, now they could, they never, te- they wouldn't attempt an apartment building. I go, no, they're doing it. It's happening to me. He goes, no, they're not. I go, yeah, they are. You know, and I went into, I was like in an episode of Curb going, right. Larry, I, you don't have to use the stupid idea, but it is happening. No, it's not. No, you know. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, let me ask you one last thing. Occasionally, we ask for a little take-home assignment, a creative spark from our guests. So, a directing point of view, or I mean, you've shared so many great ideas. But if you had something that we could share with the listener that they could take action tomorrow or this week on, uh, I would I welcome that. Well, you know what? I'm going to harken back to what I said a little bit before about what I discovered about acting in life is that when you're working on a, on a performance, you want to make great choices for yourself, but the, the real top of the mountain is to make great choices for your partner. And I find right now that most people are so emotionally and, and um, I guess intellectually and creatively jammed into their own experience because we are so isolated from each other right now. What I preach and, and teach and try to walk the walk with is if you find one thing a day and you can do it online, you can make it a collection that you eventually will use. But if you stop functioning completely out of what do I do today? What do I do? What can I do? How do I make something out of this day? How do I not just mark time? How do I use time? It becomes a lot easier if you go, who can I do something for today? Who needs a laugh, a joke? Who needs a funny message over the phone? Who needs me to come to their door, you know, with a donut or a bagel from the local bakery? And by the way, wouldn't it be great for the local bakery that's struggling to stay open to have somebody come and go, give me a half dozen bagels and take it to somebody and and sit down and go, I want you to have this. And you know what? Here's a story or here's a thing or how you doing? If you can create, and that's really what I think the purpose of creativity is, is to add to the experience of the rest of the world, to say, here's how I see, here's how I roll, here's how I do. Is it worth anything in this moment for you? 
Does it give you insight? Does it educate you? Does it uplift you? Does it challenge you? Does it help you? It is a great way to get out of this trap we're living in right now. And it doesn't ask for huge genius results. You don't have to create the Mona Lisa. That's not the thing. The thing is to take a bunch of crayons to the kid next door who isn't getting to school and having his art classes. And maybe his parents can't afford or don't have the time to run out and get him the box of crayons. So you get him a box of crayons and through the window, you color something together. That is a huge piece of creativity of the heart. And you can, you shift the world every day, one person and one act at a time. The gift of service and the gift of uh, gratitude comes with that. I thank you so much. I cherish your friendship and, and the stories you told today. On behalf of my producer, Amanda Rosenberg, and myself, thank you for being our guest. And, and Thank you, my friend. It's great to see you for any reason. Yeah, I can't wait to see you back on the boards in New York. Continued success to all of your creative family, uh, to Gabe and Noah and Dana, um, and thank my love you. to them too. All right. Thank you, Pat. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Wizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot fun, because dot com is not fun. Cheers. La, la, la.